Good evening and welcome to Paddington. Welcome to St George's Anglican. My name is Byron Smith. I'm the assistant pastor here. Uh, our regular Peace Talks director, Brooke Prentice, sends her apologies. She is travelling at the moment and doesn't return till tomorrow. Um, but we had this opportunity to uh, invite uh, our excellent speaker tonight um, and thought we would jump at it. And since he flies out, I think around the same time that she comes back in, it wasn't going to work to have an event that included both Brooke and David. Um, uh, I would also like to acknowledge that we are on record. We are we are meeting tonight on the land of the Gadigal people, stolen land, land that was never ceded, land long beloved by God and for tens of thousands of years, the home of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, uh, and extend that welcome and respect and gratitude to all Aboriginal people present. We dedicate ourselves to the task and privilege of caring for this land under Indigenous leadership, that it may remain and become for us a home and for all God's creatures. Now, you'll find on your seats um, some pieces of paper. We'll hear more about those later, I think, um, but we are here as part of a book tour, and uh, this is the book. It is On Animals. This is the second volume of a two-part work that uh, Professor Clough has been working on for a decade, um, and there are some copies of this available. I'll speak more about that uh, at the end, but um, as you're listening, you know, you'll, you, you may need to be quick at the end if you decide that this is something that you want because, uh, as I said, we're getting to the end of a month-long book tour of Australia and Aotearoa, New Zealand, and uh, so Professor Clough has... Looks like his time is run almost perfectly with just a few books left tonight for the lucky few who managed to get their hands on it. Uh, but let me introduce David. David Clough is Professor of Theological Ethics at the University of Chester in England, and he's just finished a term as president of the Society for the Study of Christian Ethics. He co-wrote Faith and Force, a Christian debate about war in 2007, debating just war and pacifism in a 21st century context, and has recently completed the landmark two-volume monograph on animals, on the place of animals in Christian theology and ethics. He is the founder of Creaturekind, a project aiming to engage Christians with farmed animal welfare. We'll hear more about that a bit later. Um, and he's principal investigator for a three-year UK Research Council-funded project on the Christian ethics of farmed animal welfare in partnership with major UK churches and with an organisation called Compassion in World Farming. He's a Methodist lay preacher and has represented the Methodist Church on national ecumenical working groups on the ethics of warfare and climate change, and that was actually how I, one of the first ways I came across your writing was the um, piece that you wrote for a combined statement from the Methodist and Baptist and United Reformed Churches in the UK on climate change, which remains, uh, if I can say, one of the best medium-length treatments, theological treatments of the topic that I've come across in all my own studies on the topic. Um, so I commend that to you as well. Uh, and so it's our privilege and delight to have David with us tonight, and I will hand over to him. Uh, there'll be a Q&A afterwards, as well as a few announcements about the book at the end. Thank you. 
Thank you, Byron, for that kind introduction. Uh, thanks for the invitation to be here this evening. And thanks to you all for coming. It's a real pleasure to see you all. And I'm really glad to have the opportunity to address you this evening. As Byron said, I've spent most of the last decade um, at work producing the 568 pages of these two volumes. And now that they're written and published, I want to get out as widely as possible to discuss the core conclusion of the work as a whole, which I'm calling the challenge of Christian animal ethics. So what's that challenge, uh, I hear you ask? Well, I feel I should offer a spoiler alert at this point. If uh, you're planning to read these books and you're the kind of person who doesn't like to know the ending in advance, you might want to shut your ears at this point. Come to think of it, perhaps giving away the ending isn't very good for book sales either. Oh well, it's too late now. The core conclusion of the entire two-volume work could be graphically represented like this. Well, perhaps it needs a little bit more explanation. <laughs> there is an abyss, as you see. The abyss is between the kind of treatment of other animals required by a Christian understanding of their place in God's purposes on the one side, and on the other, the way we're treating them at the moment. This abyss is huge. We're currently acting in ways that completely disregard the status of other animals as fellow animal creatures of the God Christians worship. In this lecture, my aim is to convince you that this abyss exists, and then convince you there's something we can do about it, and then convince you to do it. If by the end I haven't convinced you of that, I'd very much like you to put up your hand and tell me why. If I have convinced you, I'd like to point you to the first practical steps in taking up the challenge I'm laying before you. So here's where we're headed uh, together over the next 50, 60 minutes. First, I want to explain why I think it's worth our time to consider what we're doing to other animals when there are so many other pressing issues demanding our attention. I suppose your presence here this evening means you're at least open to the possibility of considering this, but perhaps you're skeptical about my proposal that animal ethics should be an important current concern. I don't think that's an improper skepticism, but I don't think it's a good reason for Christians to ignore animal ethics. So I want to start by making the case that animal ethics is worth our time. Second, I want to set out why animals should matter to Christians in particular. The Australian atheistic utilitarian philosopher Peter Singer, with whom you might be familiar, author of the landmark work Animal Liberation in the late 1970s, thinks Christianity provides the foundation for an ethic that excludes moral regard for animals. He's persuaded lots of angry atheistic vegans that he's right. Perhaps you've met some of them, I certainly have. Worse, Singer seems to have helped persuade large numbers of Christians that their faith gives them reason to be unconcerned about animals. And this is despite Christians having played the leading role in lobbying for the first anti-animal cruelty legislation in the UK in the early 19th century, forming the society that became the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Social reformers like William Wilberforce looked at their society in the context of their Christian faith and judged the abolition of slavery as a key priority issue for Christian action, 
but also identified other social issues at odds with Christian faith commitments, including cruelty towards farmed animals. At the end of the 19th century, when the RSPCA refused to condemn vivisection, having been captured by political and social elites, Christians formed new grassroots anti-vivisection organizations who held meetings, the accounts of which sound like evangelical revival meetings with hymns and impassioned sermons. They protested against the scientific and medical establishment of the day, including figures like Charles Darwin and his uh, ally Huxley, who opposed any restrictions on animal experimentation. The Christians protested that the strong should not abuse their power over the weak merely to obtain new knowledge. Um, and here's one of uh, uh, the illustrations, the only illustration apart from the cover in On Animals, Volume 2, because I couldn't resist putting it in. It comes from um, a publication called The Animal's Guardian, which was a Christian anti-vivisectionist journal. Um, this is from the 1902 edition. And you can see pictured here, um, presumably a rather surprised animal experimenter finding uh, Jesus Christ appearing in his uh, research lab. Um, he's conducting what looks like a pretty nasty operation with some kind of force-feeding apparatus on a dog. Um, and Jesus Christ appears, and the um, ribbon there reads, Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. And so Christians discovered they had specific faith concerns with the abuse of animals, and they launched um, organizations to protest about this mistreatment on this explicit faith basis. So I agree with Peter Singer that biblical texts and the Christian tradition have often been raided to justify the exploitation of other animals, but I think he's wrong to see Christianity as a root cause of this exploitation. I've told him so and told him that if he wants for utilitarian reasons to persuade Christians to treat animals better, he should stop telling them to give up on believing in God and the Bible first. To his credit, he listened carefully and then agreed to endorse On Animals Volume 1, Systematic Theology, which I think is uh, on a list of a very small number of theological works endorsed by Peter Singer. <laughs> Volume 1 considers where animals belong in Christian doctrines of creation, reconciliation, and redemption. And the second part of this lecture gallops quickly through some key points of the argument I developed there with the aim of convincing you that Christians have strong faith-based reasons for being concerned about animals. In the third part, I want to present some snapshots of what we're currently doing to other animals. On Animals, Volume 2 presents an extensive survey of what we're doing to other animals in using them for food, for textiles, for labor, for research experimentation, for sport and entertainment, as pets and companions, and our impacts on wild animals. Part three of this lecture will focus on the use we make of other animals for food, not just because I want to leave some material undiscussed as motivation for you to buy my wonderful book, but also because I argue that in scale, intensity, and impacts, this should be our priority concern. So together, parts two and three of the lecture are my case for the existence of the abyss between the kind of treatment of other animals a Christian understanding of them requires and what we're currently doing. Fourth, after hopefully convincing you of the existence of the abyss, I turn to what we can do in response and propose two key practical strategies. I'll keep you in suspense about them as an incentive to stay awake for part four, which I estimate is about um, 40 minutes away. Hang in there. That's where I'll be trying to convince you that there's something we can do about the abyss I've convinced you exists in part two and three. 
Fifth, I want to recognize that we can't see our use of other animals for food as an isolated issue and draw attention to its multiple connections with wider systemic issues. In my view, it's important both to have these in mind and to recognize that none of, the, none of them gives us reason to doubt the importance of the two strategies I'm identifying in part four. And finally, I'll suggest a couple of next steps you might take individually and more importantly, in my view, corporately, if you're convinced about the existence of the abyss and there's something we can do about it. Okay, enough of these throat-clearing preliminaries. Um, on with part one. Why animals? As I've indicated, I'm fully aware that there are many other pressing issues beyond animal ethics that demand our attention, reflection, and action. White supremacy, the operations of individual and structural racism, its connection with debates about immigration, borders, and walls is unexpectedly, at least to me, again, a live question. A wealthy world still struggles to feed the poor, with famine threatening in Yemen and sub-Saharan Africa, a situation that must be seen in connection with the obscene wealth inequality revealed in an Oxfam report earlier this year, which uh, concluded that the world's 26 richest individuals had control over the same wealth as the entire bottom half of the world's population by wealth. Our triggering of catastrophic climate change, the first fruits of which are already imperiling the lives of vulnerable human and other than human creatures, and the shocking and bewildering lack of political leadership, nationally and internationally, capable of the policy responses required, threaten to make discussion of any other issue utterly irrelevant. Um, and this is a picture of Abbott Point, which is where coal, if the uh, coal would be processed for, if the uh, Adani, uh, new Adani mine uh, is uh, approved. Um, and this is a chart that I've been keeping my eyes on during uh, the month I've been spending in Australia and New Zealand. It shows the extent of melt of the Greenland ice cap. Um, so there's enough ice on the Greenland ice cap to raise global sea levels if it all melted by seven meters. And this chart shows the, the blue line is the 30-year average for uh, melt of the Greenland ice cap. And the red line is what has happened so far this year. Uh, and so this year is extraordinary in relation to uh, uh, climate. And you may have seen reports uh, just today of record high temperatures in uh, France, two degrees Celsius higher even in June than the highest recorded uh, temperatures previously. No doubt there are other pressing issues that come uh, to your mind. How can I justify then making time for Christian animal ethics in days like these? Well, I want to offer three defenses of animal ethics, even in this context. First of all, urgency. Second, multitasking. And third, intersectionality. So first, urgency. And the clearest um, case I can make for urgency is based on the statistics uh, behind uh, these uh, two pie charts. So this first chart uh, shows the relative proportion between the biomass of farmed animals and wild land mammals, according to estimates by the scholar Vaclav Smil. And I was at, at utterly astounded when I first came across uh, this paper. As you'll see, astonishingly, by 1900, 
the combined biomass of all domesticated animals, so that's the combined weight of uh, all of the animals, if you kind of lump it together, had grown to dwarf the biomass of all wild land mammals. In 1900, the biomass of domesticated animals was three and a half times bigger than that of all wild land animals. That resulted from a combination of big increases in livestock numbers and big decreases in wild land animals significantly driven by the need to make space for all those livestock. We displaced wild animals in order to make space for raising domesticated animals for food. That's 1900. This is 2000. In the intervening 100 years, a near quadrupling in the biomass of domesticated animals was a major factor in the halving of wild land mammal biomass. So that by 2000, the biomass of domesticated animals was 24 times that of all wild land mammals. 24 times. Domesticated chickens alone are three times the biomass of all wild birds currently. And in the same 100 years, we reduced the numbers of fish in the oceans by 90%. Raising and consuming livestock in these numbers is a major contributor to an anthropogenic mass extinction event of wild animals, comparable with those found in the geological record. If we continue on this trajectory, and projection, projections are that, we will, uh, that the biomass of domesticated livestock will uh, further double between now and 2050, if we continue on this trajectory, there will be virtually no wild animals to be concerned about. And if we combine this with the realization of the cruelly impoverished lives we inflict, in, we inflict on farmed animals, the vast majority of which are raised in novel industrial environments, we can see that what we're doing to domesticated and wild animals demands our urgent attention on grounds of scale, intensity, and impact. Second, I suggest we should make time for animal ethics because we can multitask. We don't have to choose between being alert to climate catastrophe and gender equality. We can be alert to both. In recommending that we pay attention to animal ethics, I'm not suggesting we abandon concern for everything else. The policy proposals will come to in part four will not demand the whole of our time or attention. We can pay attention to more than one thing at once and so can include animal ethics as among our ethical concerns. Third, it turns out that we don't need to choose between concern for other animals, concern for human neighbors, and concern for the environment because they intersect. And I'll suggest uh, some of these uh, intersections in parts four and five. These intersections mean that challenging what we're doing to farmed animals has the potential to bring benefits for humans, wild animals, and the environment. In fact, to do well by humans, wild animals, and the environment, we have no choice but to attend to what we're doing in raising unprecedented numbers of livestock. And this image just illustrates one particular part of this uh, intersection. So as I imagine you're aware, some of the worst jobs to have in this country or any other uh, are workers in meat packing plants. Uh, to be workers in meat packing plants. They subject workers to very high risks of physical injury um, and also leave many people with symptoms analogous to those of post-traumatic stress disorder from working in these kind of conditions. Um, unsurprisingly, the, um, the 
jobs with very high uh, turnover rates are not evenly distributed demographically across uh, the Australian uh, population. There's a very disproportionately high number of uh, migrants, uh, disproportionately number, high number of uh, undocumented migrants, disproportionately numbers of uh, ethnic minorities, uh, and um, and of people who have uh, no uh, choice. It's so hard to get people to work in this industry that um, American meat plants are, uh, sorry, Australian meat plants are working at about 80% of capacity because they just can't find enough workers uh, to do uh, this awful work. And for me, this is an example of a conclusion that I've come to uh, very broadly in my work, that pretty much whenever we're doing nasty things to other than human animals, we're doing nasty things uh, to humans as well. Animal ethics is worth our time then. First, because the scale and intensity and impact of our current practice makes it urgent. Second, because we can multitask. And third, because it turns out that what we're doing in using other animals for food has deep connections to wrongdoing towards other humans and the environment. Part two. Why should other animals matter to Christians? So my challenge here is to digest On Animals Volume 1 into about 10 minutes or so, which is a plug to, another plug to buy or at least read the book where I go into substantially more detail. But as a taster, I'll follow the structure of Volume 1, Creation, Reconciliation and Redemption, with the aim of outlining the case that Christians have faith-based reasons for being concerned about animals. Now, I need to warn you that we're about to get theological, so for those less interested in Christian doctrine and who are prepared to go with what I'm arguing here, that Christians have faith-based reasons for being concerned about animals, feel free to nod off and I'll wait you when we're on the other side. To the rest of you, strap in for some doctrine. Chapter 1 of On Animals, Volume 1 asks, what creation is for? and notes a number of theologians who can be found saying that creation is all about us, that God made everything for the sake of human beings. I start with a first century Jewish philosopher, Philo of Alexandria, and trace argument and assertion made for this position in Origen, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and later John Calvin, Francis Bacon, Karl Barth, and many others, with a particular highlight and favorite of mine being Henry Moore's statement in 1653 that God only gave life to sheep and cattle to keep their meat fresh until we needed to eat them. In the face of this impressive list of authorities, I draw on arguments that to construe God's purposes anthropocentrically in a human-centered way in this manner is a grave theological mistake. I draw on a better moment in Bart here to make the case for a theocentric, God-centered understanding of creation alongside Bonaventure and Thomas Aquinas. These authors argue with others that creation has its goal in the glorification of God. I also note Wolfhart Pannenberg's concern that this theocentric interpretation of the purpose of creation risks making it seem like a divine vanity project, God creating for the sake of self-glorification, and Pannenberg's corrective supplement that God creates in order to be gracious to each creature as an end in themselves. I conclude that the theological argumentation in favor of conceiving of ourselves as God's goal in creation is thin and unpersuasive, and that there are good and much stronger theological reasons to reject such a remarkable assertion of human self-importance. Building on this key foundation, I move on to an observation that Colin Gunton made about Basil of Caesarea, uh, an early Christian theologian, that Basil came to the conclusion, quote, against the assumptions of almost the whole of the ancient world, 
that there are no degrees of being. That is to say that everything created has the same ontological status. A fundamental feature of the Christian doctrine of creation is therefore that we should recognize two kinds of things, God and creatures, and recognize ourselves as among the second kind, creature kind, uh, which gave the name to the organization uh, that Byron mentioned I founded three years ago. This means rejecting the many theological accounts that position humans as somehow awkwardly midway between angels and other animals or some necessary point of connection between God and the rest of the world. We are made of dirt or stardust, just like all of God's other creatures. And our understandable excitement about our own creaturely capacities should not tempt us to ignore or diminish the particular capacities of our fellow creatures. Humans are unique and have a unique vocation before God given the high responsibility of imaging God to our fellow creatures. But every other creature also has their own unique divine vocation. Ask the psalmist who delights in God's ordering of a diverse world of creatures, each glorifying their maker in their own place and particular mode of life, such as in Psalm 104, and who celebrates the God who has compassion on all creatures, providing for every living thing, Psalm 145. This attitude towards fellow creatures is commended in Pope Francis's 2015 encyclical Laudato Si, which states, every creature is thus the object of the Father's tenderness, who gives it its place in the world. Even the fleeting life of the least of beings is the object of his love, and in its few seconds of existence, God enfolds it with his affection. Sometimes I think we're resistant to accepting this generous love of God for all creatures out of an anxiety about scarcity. If God loves everything God has made, how can God be truly loving of us? The answer, I think, is in Jesus' teaching about sparrows. He reassures his disciples that they need not be afraid because they know that even a single sparrow is not forgotten by God and they are worth more than many sparrows. Now, we tend to rush to the end of this teaching about the more important bit, forgetting that it was only reassuring to Jesus' audience because they already knew all about God's care for seemingly insignificant creatures. There is no competition. In the generous logic of God's loving, God's love for all creatures is the foundation for realizing the extent of God's love for us. Therefore, a Christian doctrine of creation has good reason to see ourselves alongside our fellow animal creatures and to be dubious about the merits of our ubiquitous habits of thinking that consider humans in an entirely different category from other creatures and fail to recognize humans as part of creation. I wonder how many times you've heard preachers or theologians uh, or Sunday school teachers talk about God, humans, and creation. It's utterly absurd. We're part of creation. We're a creature. So creation is best understood as God's gracious bestowal of being on all creatures, both for their own sake and so that they may glorify God in their participation in the triune life of God. All creatures are declared good by their creator in their own right. All creatures exist in utter dependence on God and mutual dependence on one another. No creature can be comprehended merely as the means to the flourishing of another. God's animal creatures have particular attributes in common. 
They're fleshy creatures with the breath of life. God breathed, worth remembering in the season of Pentecost, especially dependent on other organisms for their survival, often the common subjects in scripture of God's blessing and judgment, capable of response to God in a distinctive mode. Differences between animal creatures need to be understood in the context of this commonality, with attention given to the particular mode of life of each animal creature and similarities between groups of animals, vertebrates, mammals, primates, not neglected in specifying the particularity of the human mode of being an animal creature. Now, perhaps you'll grant me that a Christian doctrine of creation provides grounds for valuing the lives of other animals. But think that by the time we get to Christology, incarnation and atonement, we're liable to lapse back into anthropocentrism, a human-centered view of things. Volume one, part two, argues that to interpret the doctrine of reconciliation anthropocentrically is also a theological mistake. We've sometimes been given to believe that God became human for the sake of saving humans from human sin. But there are important reference points for a much wider perspective on God's work in Jesus Christ. The prologue to John's Gospel summarizes the doctrine of the incarnation as that the word became not human, but flesh. That messy, bodily, bloody, muscly, bony stuff common to us and animal creatures in both the Hebrew term basar and the Greek term sarx. The famous verse, John 3.16, beloved of so many Christian sign writers, declares that God gave his only son because God so loved not humans, but the world, the cosmos in Greek. The opening of the letter to the Ephesians declares that in Christ, God gathered up all things, tapanta, in heaven and earth. And the opening of Colossians pictures the Lord Jesus Christ as the firstborn of all creation, in whom all things were made, reconciling all things in heaven and earth to God by making peace on the cross. Tapanta is repeated, all things is repeated about five or six times within a few verses at the, in, in that first chapter of Colossians. I could say much more here, but in the context of these majestic visions of the cosmic scope of God's reconciling work in Christ, to think of incarnation and atonement as a mono-species transaction between God and Homo sapiens seems a strangely blinkered underestimate of what God has done in Christ. I'm going to pause for a moment here to draw your attention to these two paintings, which are part of a series painted by Stanley Spencer called Christ in the Wilderness. And one way of understanding uh, the paintings is as a commentary on a half verse in Mark's Gospel. Uh, so you may remember Mark's Gospel uh, narrates Jesus' baptism and then says that Jesus went into the wilderness and was with the wild animals. And we've sometimes read that half verse as thinking, what a muscle man Jesus must have been to go into that awful place and be with those awful animals and survive. Uh, but Richard Borkham and other theologians have instead suggested that Mark may be thinking about a fulfillment of messianic prophecy in that half verse, uh, where Isaiah says that when the Messiah comes, there'll be peace between predators and prey and humans uh, and other animals. And so I think what uh, Spencer is uh, getting at here is that Jesus is living peaceably with uh, these wild creatures um, in fulfillment of the vision. And he's picked out uh, animals that are present in Jesus' teaching. So do you remember the time when Jesus weeps over Jerusalem and says, how many times have I longed to gather you up as a mother hen gathers her chicks? 
which suggests when you think about it that Jesus spent time watching mother hens gather uh, their chicks. Um, and then you remember when uh, Jesus uh, says foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has no place to uh, lay his head, which suggests he's familiar with the practice of foxes uh, as well. In another memorable image, uh, Stanley Spencer paints Jesus uh, cradling a scorpion in the palm of his hand. Um, if you're ever in Perth, uh, the paint, I haven't seen them yet, uh, but the paintings are in um, the art, uh, an art gallery in Perth, I'm reliably informed. In reaching the last major doctrinal heading of Volume 1, Redemption, again, it may seem that everything is in danger of collapsing back into anthropocentrism. Christians have sometimes come to think of redemption as something like a teleporting of a select group of human souls out of their bodies in order to drift about with angels in a cloudy heaven. But Christian thinking about redemption is much more diverse and often much more grounded in creaturely diversity as the American 19th century Quaker preacher Edward Hicks' painting of the Peaceable Kingdom portrays. So Hicks is drawing on this same vision in Isaiah 11, 6-9. The wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hands on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is a prophecy of what happens when the Messiah comes. And you can see that Hicks is picturing peace um, in this redemptive vision between colonial invaders and native peoples on the left side of uh, the image, as well as peace between all kinds of animal creatures on the right, including uh, a rather attractive kittenish lion. In 1781, John Wesley preached a sermon on Romans 8, 19 to 22, uh, where Paul writes about a creation groaning in labor pains, in bondage, seeking uh, liberation. Wesley's sermon was called The General Deliverance, and he makes the case for God's care for animals by drawing on the Psalms and declares that God is merciful to animals in redeeming them from their suffering. Quote, Nothing can be more express. Away with vulgar prejudices and let the plain word of God take place. Animals shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into glorious liberty, even a measure according as they are capable of the liberty of the children of God. This was not a passing concern for Wesley. Three years later, he published John Hildrop's Free Thoughts Upon the Brute Creation, a book which argued that all creatures that God had a reason to create, God also has a reason to preserve, since any reason for their annihilation or extinction would be a reason they should not have been created in the first place. These inclusive creaturely visions of redemption are in continuity with Irenaeus' doctrine of anacophaliosis or recapitulation in which Christ redeems the whole creation and Origen's doctrine of apocatastasis in which all things are returned to their paradisical state. This wider creaturely vision of redemption is also reflected in the book of Revelation which pictures every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing praises to the Lamb in chapter 5. Again, I could say much more here and do in Volume 1, Part 3, but making the Christian doctrine of redemption a monospecies event with the myriad number of every other kind of creature in this vast universe merely discarded 
seems deeply unattractive in the, com in the context of these encompassing and generous redemptive visions. Okay, for those of you sleeping through the doctrine, it's time to uh, wake up, time for some stories. I wonder if you've heard this one told of St. Macarius of Alexandria, an Egyptian hermit in the 4th century. The story goes that one day as Macarius was sitting in his cell, he heard a knocking at his door. Thinking a fellow monk had come to see him, he opened the door and was astonished to find that a hyena had been knocking on the door with her head. She held her puppy in her mouth and offered the puppy to him, weeping. Macarius took the puppy in his hands and looked to see what was the matter. He saw that the puppy was blind in both eyes. He took the puppy, groaned, spat on the puppy's face and signed the puppy on the eyes with his finger. Immediately the puppy could see, ran to his mother, suckled from her and followed her away. The next day, the hyena returned and knocked on the hermit's door again. This time when he opened the door, he saw that she had a sheepskin in her mouth. He asked her where she'd got the sheepskin, if she had not eaten a sheep, and told her that he would not take the sheepskin if it had come of violence. The hyena struck her head on the ground, bent her paws, and prayed on her knees for him to take it. But he said he would not take it unless she promised not to harm the poor by eating their sheep. And she nodded her head as if she were promising him. Then he told her he would not take it unless she promised not to kill another creature. And if she were hungry, she should come to him and he would give her bread. The hyena bent, nodded, and looked him in the eye as if she were promising him. So Macarius offered praises to God for giving understanding to the animals and letting Macarius come to understand God's ways. He took the sheepskin from the hyena and she went away. From time to time, she would come to Macarius for food and he would give her bread. And he slept on the sheepskin until he died. These kind of stories seem to uh, follow me around. When I lived in Durham, I was delighted to come across St. Godric, who had lived in a hermitage a mile or two down the River Weir from Durham, where I sometimes took the family for walks. Um, one day, an exhausted stag being pursued by the Bishop of Durham's hunt arrived shivering from exhaustion at the gate of Godric's hermitage and seen by his cries to beseech Godric's help. Godric was moved by pity, bade him hush his moans, and he opened the door of his hut to let him in, at which the stag dropped at his feet. But Godric felt that the hunt was coming near and came out of the hut, shut the door, and sat down outside. The hunt hacked through thorns and briars with their blades to reach the man and asked him where the stag was, to which Godric replied, God knows where he may be. The hunters asked his pardon for intruding on him. The stag kept house with Godric until the evening, but would afterwards often visit him and lie at his feet in gratitude for his deliverance. After I moved to Chester in northwest England, I found that the city's patron saint, St. Werburgh, was said to have had a farm outside the city walls where wild geese would come and destroy her standing corn. Her steward tried without success to drive them off and complained to St. Werburgh of his difficulty. She told him to shut them up in the house, which he thought was a joke. But when she insisted, he went to the field and told the geese to do their lady's bidding and follow him. With one accord, they formed a flock and walked with bent, neck, with bent necks after him to be shut up. But the steward took one of the geese overnight, uh, killed and ate it. The next morning, the maid scolded the geese for destroying the crops and told them to leave. But the geese protested to St. Werburgh that one of their number was missing. 
In response to their complaints, St. Werberg was moved with compassion, and God revealed to her that her steward had killed the goose. She told him to bring the bones of the goose to her, and at a healing sign from her hand, skin and flesh grew on the bones, and feathers fledged upon the skin, until the living bird first took an eager hop and was then on the wing, joined by the rest of the rejoicing flock, who thanked St. Werberg, their deliverer, before they left. You can find lots of these stories and many others in a wonderful little book by Helen Waddell called Beasts and Saints. I wonder at and delight in these stories along with many others like them. As we smile at them, it seems to me that we should not only smile. These stories present the insight treasured by those who pass them on that it belongs to Christian holiness to be compassionate towards other animals that we should take a high view of the capacities of animals to be responsive subjects, that we should have a deep appreciation that God's will is for peace between all creatures, <coughs> and that we can anticipate and witness to this peace in our actions here and now. <coughs> These stories of the saints extend biblical visions of peace between creatures into a world a little closer to our own. So I've argued in this part two that Christians have strong doctrinal reasons for recognizing the place of other animals in God's purposes alongside human beings, and that their participation in God's work of creation, reconciliation and redemption provides strong grounds for Christians to be concerned about their particular lives of creaturely flourishing, in which each in their particular creaturely way, like us, they glorify their creator. Through this and the way this understanding is mediated in the stories of the saints, I'm hoping I've convinced you that Christians have strong faith-based reasons for being concerned about animals, which is the first step in demonstrating the existence of the abyss between the kind of treatment that a Christian understanding of other animals requires and what we're currently doing. <coughs> which leads me to part three. What are we currently doing to other animals? As I've said, volume two of On Animals discusses how we make uh, use of animals in all kinds of ways, but I'm going to focus on our use of other animals for food on the basis of its orders of magnitude bigger than uh, any other use we make of them. Though I'm happy to discuss other uses of an animals in response to uh, questions later. I feel the need to issue another content advisory at this point. If part two of the talk was demanding in its delving into doctrine, the challenge of this part is confronting the deeply uncomfortable truths about the lives and deaths we're currently inflicting on other animals. Volume two, chapter two, sets the pattern for the chapters that follow in taking considerable time to attend to and describe our practice of using other animals for food, which inflicts very significant harm and suffering on them and provides very little opportunity for them to flourish in their complex social patterns of life or make use of their often sophisticated cognitive capacities. Many farmed animals have their lives and bodies entirely reshaped to make them more efficient units of human production, usually to their very great cost. Now you've had about a minute to look at this image and I'm wondering if any of you can guess what is depicted there. Fishing boats. Do you know, I've been on the road for five weeks in the United States and a month in Australia, and you're the first person to get that right. <laughs> this, congratulations. This, this is a satellite image of the ocean. The black dots there are industrial trawler vessels 
The reason they're leaving those trails behind is that they're dragging behind them huge nets with heavy booms that are scraping along the bottom of the seabed. And you can see in numbers like this, this is oceanic clear-cutting. They're taking everything in their path with them. Remarkably, 98 to 99% of animals killed for human food are fish, but they've often been, been neglected uh, in uh, consideration of animal ethics. The expansion of fishing and adoption of this kind of industrial method have resulted in reduction of wild fish stocks, as I've said, by 90% since 1900. Um, just two days ago, Greenpeace published a report on uh, uh, the problems of, off the west coast of Africa of this kind of uh, trawling, uh, depriving local uh, fishers or, uh, of uh, food because these are taking not only large fish but also the small fish that larger fish um, uh, survive on the pelagic uh, fish. A former colleague of mine at the University of Chester, Lynn Snedden, has done some of the pioneering research on pain perception in fish. There's now um, a really impressive scientific body of evidence that fish do suffer pain, um, and that is a really significant concern given the vast numbers and the fact that these are animals we don't even bother to slaughter. Um, and so in um, the kind of wild capture process, uh, many fish uh, suffer crushing injuries and are killed even before they're pulled out of the water. And then the remainder are obviously slowly asphyxiating as they're drawn out of the water. The decks of the industrial trawlers are often refrigerated to keep the fish fresher for longer, and that slows down the asphyxiation process, which can take two to three hours. About half of fish now derive from intensive fish farms, um, which raise fish in close confinement and, um, and subject them to uh, uh, crowded, disease-prone conditions, and then these are nets that are porous to the ocean environment, and so they're also devastating for the local environment where chemicals and feed and sea lice then infect um, neighboring wild uh, fish. But the most scandalous thing that I discovered while researching this is on average, you have to feed a farmed fish twice as much wild fish as you get out at the end. So apart from anything else, this is exacerbating pressures on wild fish stocks uh, as well. After fish, chickens are used in biggest numbers, with 66 billion killed for food in 2016 and a further 8 billion used for eggs. <coughs> the vast majority of chickens are raised intensively in broiler sheds or battery cages, bred to maximize their productivity so that broiler hens reach slaughter weight in only five weeks, suffering pain from legs forced to support prematurely heavy bodies. Male chicks from laying breeds of hens, because we've completely separated the kinds of hens we raise for meat and eggs, are surplus to requirements. So are killed by maceration, which is just being dropped live into a grinding machine, or um, uh, uh, gassing um, after hatching. Those are the two approved methods, both in the European Union and in Australia. Uh, and that's four billion male chicks uh, killed each year. Um, and all commercial systems of egg production uh, rely on that technology. Ducks are the next most numerous animal killed for food after chickens, with three billion killed annually, most of which are raised intensively in similar conditions to chickens. Pigs are the next most intensively reared animal, with 1.5 billion killed in 2016, most of whom live in bare indoor sheds with very little opportunities for the exp expression of species-specific uh, behaviours. And they did a remarkable experiment in the late 80s in Edinburgh, where they took pigs out of this kind of intensive facility that had been bred for generations in this kind of condition, and then gave them access to parkland. 
and they found that they adopted a behavioral repertoire very similar to that of wild boar. Uh, they would be marking out their territory, they'd be very careful where they ate and where they defecated, they'd develop very particular friendships. The sows, when they were uh, pregnant and ready to give birth, would build elaborate nests at a great distance from the rest of the pigs. Um, and we take all of that social, and they would spend more, the, more than half the time rooting in the earth. That's what you really love to do if you're a pig. Uh, and we subject them instead uh, to conditions uh, like that. I saw intensive pig farming just for the first time in December. It's quite hard to get to see what happens inside uh, these sheds. And even after researching this stuff for 10 years, I was really shocked uh, by seeing um, a situation very similar to that. Nearly 1 billion rabbits are killed each year for food, most of whom are raised in small cages. Most sheep and goats are raised extensively, but moves to intensive indoor production are becoming more common, especially for dairy. Lambs are killed at only a few months of age, and as I'm sure you're aware, sheep with other livestock are often subjected to the great stress of live export and long journeys by sea and road. So from Australia, that's about a million sheep a year currently, uh, most of whom are uh, having this long journey to the Middle East, um, uh, maybe 20 to 25 days, and subjecting them to heat stress of up to 40 degrees Celsius, and, and then uncertain conditions of welfare at slaughter. And then about a million cattle going to uh, Indonesia and other uh, Asian countries. Increasingly intensive methods are being used to raise cattle with uh, animals confined to bare feeding lots for finishing before slaughter. As I came to Australia, I wanted to uh, check uh, Australian practice. And this is an image um, from uh, Queensland, fairly near where I was speaking in Brisbane. Uh, and so cattle are being raised in the north and then uh, uh, taken around uh, by land uh, to finishing lots, uh, they're called, um, where they're being fed grain um, before uh, slaughter. Growing numbers of dairy cows in my country are kept inside without access to grazing, and I don't think that is a problem uh, in Australia, but what is, is that virtually all dairy cows have their uh, calves taken from them uh, as soon as the calves are born. Uh, so these are female animals that are forcibly impregnated, kept um, perpetually pregnant, and never see uh, their offspring. Um, and then I was, when I met with the head of Animals Australia while I was in Melbourne, uh, she was um, pointing out that many of these uh, male calves, so we have got a parallel problem as with uh, having separated uh, chickens for uh, uh, meat and eggs, we've got a parallel problem with dairy uh, calves, obviously the male calves are redundant, and many of these male bobby calves are slaughtered at uh, four or five days of, of age after up to 30 hours without any food or water. The task I set myself in this part of the lecture was to convince you that there is an abyss between the kind of treatment a Christian understanding of animals requires and what we're currently doing. I'll await your response, but it seems to me beyond question that subjecting fellow animal creatures to these lives and these deaths merely to satisfy our preference for cheap access to products derived from their bodies is blatantly unnecessary cruelty at deep odds with Christian faith commitments. That's the abyss I'm seeking to convince you of. So part four, what then should we do differently? 
Well, first of all, I suggest we need to reduce consumption. Reducing consumption is crucial as a direct response to the impoverished lives and deaths we inflict on other animals. First, because it reduces the numbers of animals drawn into these systems. And second, because no substantial increases in welfare are possible at anything like current production levels. So a recent Harvard paper provides evidence that moving to humane welfare standards for cattle in the US would mean reducing uh, beef production by 75%. We can only give animals used for food any kind of lives worth living in the context of raising many, many fewer of them. So reducing consumption is vital to improve anim farm animal welfare standards. But it's helpful to appreciate that reducing our consumption of animals is widely beneficial far beyond the well-being of the animals uh, themselves. And this is where the intersections I've been talking to uh, come in. There are a range of other reasons for reducing consumption of animals, each of which would be sufficient independently. As noted earlier, what we're doing in raising and killing vast numbers of animals for food in this way also intersects with problems for wild animals, humans and environmental well-being. The livestock industry threatens human food and water security, and those already suffering from deprivation are at greatest risk. Currently, what we're doing is taking over a third of the global grain supply and feeding it to farmed animals. Humans eating those animals derive only 8% of the calories that would be derived from consuming the grain directly. So we're throwing away uh, virtually a third of our global grain supply. Animal agriculture is also a very significant consumer of scarce global water supplies. Producing a kilogram of beef requires 20 times the water required from producing the same calories from plant-based sources. The unprecedentedly high levels of meat and other animal products consumed in developed nations directly damages human health through increased incidence of heart disease, cancer, type 2 diabetes, and stroke. In addition, intensive farming practices contribute, contribute to both the rise of antibiotic-resistant bacterial strains and the risk of pandemics from zoonotic diseases such as swine flu and bird flu. So at the moment, we're feeding, in the, in the US, about 80% of antibiotics are fed to farmed animals. In China and India, there's uh, last resort antibiotics, which are ones by international agreement are sort of kept in reserve for times when nothing else will work. And at the moment, in India and China, they're being fed to farmed animals. Um, and as someone who uh, had a, a, uh, my youngest daughter, who uh, was about uh, 11 at the time, uh, suffered from a, bacteria, a serious bacterial infection that meant she was on intravenous antibiotics for uh, several months. And so as a, as a parent who has a real sense of the touch-and-go nature of being able to control lethal uh, infections, it seems to me that um, our irresponsibility in the way we're using um, antibiotics in relation to farmed animal, uh, intensive uh, farmed animal um, uh, production, which is the only way you can get animals to carry on living in the environments we're uh, keeping them in, seems uh, really uh, scandalous. And so at the moment in uh, China, there's a massive um, uh, pandemic of uh, swine flu, which is likely to lead to the culling of up to 200 million pigs um, as it spreads to other parts of Asia. And this strain is not communicable to humans, but other strains are. And scientists researching this area are really confident that we'll, before very long there will be a pandemic with high human mortality. In relation to the environment, raising livestock is one of the major contributors globally to climate change. So globally, that figure is about 14.5% of all anthropogenic emissions. Um, in Australia, I think that's about 10% of uh, national uh, emissions, even in the context of uh, various uh, uh, extractive industries and fossil fuels. 
but is missing from many carbon reduction strategies uh, internationally. The intensive rearing of farmed animals also degrades local environments, and provision of grazing and growing fodder for livestock is a major cause of deforestation, which is leading to the current mass wild animal extinction event. 78% of all agricultural land is currently devoted to raising farmed animals, which means a great deal of land could be returned to wild animals if we switch towards a plant-based diet. For all of these reasons, it's really clear that reducing consumption of animals is crucial for the well-being of humans, of other animals, and our shared environment. The account of our current practice I provided in part three makes clear that alongside reducing overall consumption of animals, we need to, need to source any remaining animal products we consume from higher welfare sources that provide more opportunity for farmed animals to flourish and glorify God in their particular creaturely ways. Animal products from higher welfare environments will be more expensive because it's the cruel industrial systems that made them cheap in the first place. But in association with reducing overall consumption of animal products, the overall cost of eating less and better animal products need not be more expensive, either domestically or institutionally in relation to budgets. So reducing consumption and shifting to higher welfare sourcing, I suggest, are the two key uh, practical uh, strategies. But isn't it more complicated than those two simple strategies would suggest? My first answer is uh, yes. On my way to Australia uh, at the beginning of the month, I read uh, Bruce Pascoe's uh, Dark Emu, which many of you uh, may have read as well. And one of the parts that absolutely gripped me was this uh, graphic showing an Aboriginal grain belt across the heart of Australia in pre-colonial times. So what happens, what we're doing in relation to livestock turns out to be intensively uh, engaged with other uh, issues of uh, human social justice issues. So my English forebears, when they arrived uh, in these lands, uh, brought sheep. Uh, and Pasco uh, makes clear that they basically followed herds of sheep uh, across uh, into Australia. And the sheep were devastating complex patterns of Aboriginal uh, uh, land management that had endured for tens of thousands of years at least. Um, ironically, the sheep may have destroyed uh, a lot of uh, the biodiversity of Australia and uh, these uh, Aboriginal agricultural systems even before white colonists saw it. Um, and so what we're, doing in, what we're doing in relation to livestock is very strongly related to, uh, to all kinds of other uh, structural uh, injustices. Uh, the sort of reproduction of uh, domesticated animal relationships turns out to have been uh, devastating, not just for biodiversity and agricultural systems, but for the regard of the colonists uh, of uh, Aboriginal peoples who were regarded as primitive and not making appropriate use of the land because they weren't domesticating livestock in the way that my English forebears were. During my time uh, in Melbourne, I gave a paper at Deakin and was really fortunate to meet uh, Christopher Mays, um, who's... Uh, wrote a, a brilliant book, Unsettling Food Politics. Um, and uh, Christopher had the idea of uh, juxtaposing the, uh, a map, this map showing the intensity of uh, sheep in the early colonial period uh, with the developing and unfinished map of uh, charting where uh, massacres of indigenous peoples uh, took place. Um, and if we overlay the map of um, sites of uh, massacres, 
uh, you can see that there's a very, very close match between uh, where sheep were being uh, raised and where uh, those massacres took place. And often sheep were the provocation. They were literally the invasive species. Um, they were um, de uh, depriving indigenous uh, people of their uh, livelihood, and when uh, they were killed by indigenous peoples, uh, either out of uh, self-defense um, or as reprisal, that was taken as an excuse for uh, massacre events. And so what we're doing in relation to domestic livestock, again, uh, is deeply related uh, to systemic human injustices. And there are many other ways we could chart that these, these complexities. But what I want to suggest is that none of those complexities, which we ought to be attentive to, take away from the uh, urgency of reducing consumption of animal products and moving to higher welfare sourcing. So finally, what's the next step? Well, you may want, after uh, hearing this, if uh, any of what I've said is news to you, you may want to think about your individual uh, practice. Um, in terms of uh, the kind of animal products you're consuming and think, rethink in terms of quantity and uh, sourcing uh, the uh, animal products that you're putting uh, on your plate. But as I said at the beginning, I'm particularly keen to encourage people to think about this uh, issue corporately. So eating together is one thing that has been hugely important in Christian and other faith uh, traditions, and it seems to me, therefore, that we have a really important resource within our faith practice uh, for uh, thinking well about uh, food practice and therefore paying attention uh, to where food uh, figures in uh, church practice and the practice of Christian institutions uh, in which we uh, participate. Um, so the organization I mentioned, uh, CreatureKind, is um, seeking to provide resources for churches and other Christian organizations who want to take uh, issue of animal uh, welfare seriously in uh, their institutional practice. We've got an excellent course uh, on Christianity and animals, a six-week uh, small group study course, including video resources and Bible studies and leaders' guides, um, and even uh, recipes for a simple plant-based meal that you might have at the beginning of each uh, session. And in relation to institutions, we've got really good guidance and prepared to work with institutions um, and are in conversation with about 50 different theological colleges and universities um, about how you could reduce consumption of animal products and move to higher welfare uh, sourcing. Um, so we're really keen uh, to work uh, with organizations and if that's uh, of interest, um, uh, uh, do get in touch. You can find us there and you've got a flyer on your uh, seats about uh, creature kind. So we could think about individual food choices, uh, but uh, perhaps more importantly, corporate uh, food choices. Um, okay, so I might have recapped at this point, but I'm sure you've been all been paying uh, careful attention, and uh, time is getting on, so I'll, I'll leave that uh, for now and just say a, a brief remark in conclusion. At the beginning of the lecture, I noted that 200 years ago, Christians were at the vanguard of a new social movement that challenged cruelty towards animals on faith-based grounds. What if Christians were to rediscover this legacy 200 years on and take up the baton? Um, what if churches uh, like this one uh, and many others were to rise up and lead the way in challenging the willful disregard of our fellow creatures of God in industrial animal agriculture through the championing of a change of practice on the basis of their Christian values? As I've said, CreatureKind will be glad uh, to work with you in identifying practical first steps. So what next? If you're convinced, I'd be interested in hearing from you where you see opportunities in the churches and institutions you're part of for a practical response to these issues. If you're not convinced, I'd be really glad to hear your questions and critique, and I very much look forward to our conversation. Thank you.